Dr. Allen, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing very well, Nate. And you? Doing well. Doing well. You're telling me that you live in like the most least populous, the most least. Uh, that's probably an, an oxymoron right off the bat. But you live in one of the least populous areas in the country. Yes. How far is the grocery store? How far is your grocery store? It's two and a half miles. Oh, that's not bad. No. But for some people, it's probably a lot further. Well, you know, if we wanted to get to our next biggest hospital, that's 85 miles. So, Ooh, okay. yeah, we and and in the wintertime, you know, you don't want to be dry. Winter can kill you here. Now, how far are you from Fargo? I would say about uh, 300 miles. Okay. And we are west of Fargo. Fargo's at the eastern portion of the state, very close to uh, Moorhead, which is in Minnesota. Hmm. Uh, we are close to Montana and South Dakota here. Right. So if you guys get sick or there's an emergency, or you, you split open your, your hand or your arm, your leg, what do you got to do? You, how do you how do you manage it for 80 miles? Well, it, it's complicated and it's lonely for sure. And sometimes, you know, we do see those patients and we can see quite a few emergencies. We had a lady come in with a 26 week baby in her pants. That was a big uh, that was complicated for us. We do have a good ground ambulance service, and we have an ability to patch things up long enough to get people to the next town. Sometimes, if I'm not on call, I'll ride in the ambulance to Bismarck, which, uh, like I said, is 85 miles away. You had a woman show up to your hospital 26 weeks pregnant, and she had delivered the baby on the way to the hospital? That's correct. How do you handle that situation? Believe me, that was complicated. And uh, <laughs> one of the biggest problems we had was trying to get the baby moved out. We, the uh, I could get a hold of somebody who would take the mother, who, of course, didn't need to be transferred. But the baby was another thing. So eventually we got a neonatologist to come by helicopter to take care of the baby here and then uh, take the baby back to uh, Bismarck in the helicopter. What's the most important, what's the most critical thing when you're faced with that kind of situation, Doc? And you've got this woman who's got a baby literally delivered. What's the most critical thing that you guys have to do as the first thing, first point of attack? We have to, of course, be ready. And naturally, that means making a chart. But the most important thing is being calm. You know, getting excited, getting worried, uh, showing people that you're frightened that doesn't do any good so number one stay calm number two make a chart number three make your arrangements to get your patient stabilized number four get the patient out what do you do with the baby though the baby's still connected to the umbilical cord i take it that's right of course we cut the cord you know clamp the cord and we put in an iv in the left um arm and uh, so we could get some medication in there, some epinephrine. Uh, we had to bag the baby because it didn't have, um, it It wasn't breathing on its own. And of course, you're not going to, we had no surfactant, which is something like, it helps the baby's lungs open up so they can exchange air. So we weren't really ready for that, but then we don't see that probably more than once every 25 years. That was the only time that ever happened to you. It's the only time it happened here. Uh, I've had babies t 
term babies delivered in the emergency room who have had no trouble. But this is the only baby we've delivered here. And in the 6,000 plus pregnancies that you've done, you've never lost a baby. Is that correct? Well, we haven't lost a mother. You they haven't lost a mother. Okay. Right. So, the you know, the maternal mortality rate here in this country is uh, about 20 or 23 per 100,000 for uh, average. If you look at people of like Native Americans, Native Alaskans, it's 40 per 100,000. And if you look at non-Hispanic Hispanic Blacks, it's 55 per 100,000. So we have a disparity based on color. And why is that? Well, unfortunately, we're dealing with access, a problem with access. In other words, uh, if you, and we also have a big problem with socioeconomic um, disadvantage. So if you are somebody making $100,000 a year, you probably have more time to get to see your doctor because COVID has made things complicated. But if you're working two jobs for $15 an hour, uh, you may not only uh, have trouble getting some time off, but you might also have trouble getting to see the doctor. So I think the problem is access. The other problem that Black women have is that even doctors of color treat them differently than they do women, uh, white women. So we're not training our doctors very well. They need to be trained to think in terms of avoiding disparity. Uh, elaborate on that, if you would. How are they treating, in your opinion, how are they treating the a black doctor is treating his or her female patient who's black different than his or her female patient who's white? How so? Uh, I think it, a lot of it has to do with access. For example, a patient calls in with an emergency. Uh, some will be seen right away. Some will be seen on another time. Uh, there's also, of course, a problem with uh, insurance, but that has nothing to do with color. Um, I think that it's also a matter of once the patient gets in, do you listen to her? Uh, and how do you take how seriously do you take what she's saying? For example, if she comes in with nausea, um, what do you tell her? Do you talk, sit down and talk with her about how to eat, or do you send her home and, or do you send her home with a bunch of pills? The best thing to do with patients is to listen to them and to give them advice that they can use at home. And I think that is not being done much for people of color. Yeah, and I'm just trying to understand because uh, a, a person of color who's a doctor, you're saying is even making a disparity with their own color, and I'm I'm just not I'm not finding the connection there. Why is that? What what don't they do? They not believe her as much. Is that what you're suggesting? Is well, there's partly that, but remember that residencies are mostly white, and I think that for a black doctor to survive a residency, they need to think white. Mm. Huh. That's, that's, that's very, that's very deep. And I've never heard it put that way. You know, the medical system better than me. And obviously we can do a whole episode on, on that issue, which is not the intent of today's discussion, but I just wanted to hear what you, what you thought about that, because that struck me as peculiar. Well, we have a lot. If you look at people with countries with good, uh, 
maternal care, for example, the Scandinavian countries, they have two or three per 100,000. Our maternal mortality rate here in this country is equivalent to Iran. And we are at, we rank 35th among developed countries. So we have a lot of work to do. We're not only disserving black patients, but we're not serving white patients very well either. Another challenge, Dr. Allen, that I would imagine that you have to face at times is dealing not only with a healthy white patient, uh, uh, unhealthy white patient, a healthy minority patient, unhealthy, et cetera. There's also times where you've had to deal with demented patients. And I believe that you listened to the podcast we just did with Carlin Maddox, whose wife was um, diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease at the age of 50, yeah. five zero. Um, talk about how you handle those situations. Well, I've been doing primary care for the last uh, several decades. And as part of that, I have nursing homes. And of course, I listen to the patients. The biggest problem that we have with dementia, and incidentally, Alzheimer's is a specific kind of dementia, which starts early. If you look at 90-year-olds, probably half or three-quarters are demented. But anyway, one of the biggest problems we have dealing with dementia is the family. And the first reaction that a family member has is anger. In other words, I'm tired of looking for you at three o'clock in the morning when you decide to go for a walk and it's 10 below uh, zero outside, it's snowing, uh, you get lost and I can't find you. So there's anger. The other thing is, and this came up in your discussion, don't argue. Uh, the only thing that correcting a dementia patient does is it makes them not trust you. So, and they're, they're, there's a time when their beliefs are very fixed. And we have medications called Aricept and Namenda. And I think you have to be very careful with those because what they promise is that the, they t will slow down the rate of dementia. Now, how you measure that, of course, is totally unknown. So, uh, Doctor, yeah. have you ever had to treat a patient with early stage dementia a patient that's in their 30s, 40s, that's delivering a baby who has already the onset of dementia? You know, I have not had that. As a matter of fact, most 30-year-olds wouldn't have dementia, or most 40-year-olds wouldn't either. Uh, 50 is probably a pretty common time. I have delivered patients who have um, less than average IQ. A couple of them haven't even known they were pregnant. As a matter of fact, I couldn't even get them to push in bed because they didn't believe they had a baby in them. So that's one of the biggest problems with a low IQ. Well, that's that's different than less than average. Because again, you just threw me another, another thing that really surprised me in this conversation that we've been having for just a matter of minutes now. You're saying that there's been women who have gone full term, 40 weeks, give or take, who are in the bed in the hospital with you telling them it's time to push and they don't believe there's a baby inside of them. Exactly. I, that has happened. As a matter of fact, I usually when that happens, I have them go to the toilet because they think they have to have a bowel movement. So they'll push on the toilet. 
Then when it comes to actually delivering, I hold up the mirror so they can watch in the mirror and see the baby coming out. What do they think the, the bump that's grown inside of them? What do they think that is? Actually, they don't pay attention to it. And I can, that's really hard to imagine that you would could man, get through a whole pregnancy. But I have now uh, several of those patients who have done that. Um, most wow. of them, once you tell them they're pregnant and you tell them they're in labor, they believe it. But like I said, I've had a couple who don't don't believe it till they see the baby coming out. So they go obviously full nine months without any doctor's visits. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a, it's, you know, you'd think there'd be trouble with it. In other words, the baby would be too big. The baby would be too small. The baby would be feet first. Never have seen that. They've all, these have all gone well, mm. to my surprise. That's shocking. Do you ask, do you say to them, have you felt kicking? And what, how do they, what do they say about that? <laughs> well, I expect what they, in the usual answer is, I think it's gas. Right. They think that they were just hungry that day or, or for a period of like five to 10 weeks straight. <laughs> just... <laughs> oh my gosh, man. That's, that's wild. So, um, well, okay. So you, you haven't had a, a patient who's considered you know, demented or dementia when they're pregnant that you're delivering. You haven't had to deal with that. Nope. That's, uh, you know, I have had my oldest patient has been 45 years. So she could have been demented, but she wasn't. Right. Okay. So let's talk about, we mentioned this, you've delivered 6,000 plus babies. You've lost no mothers on the table. You've lost no mothers afterwards. You're, you're, you have a flawless record and you believe that, that science and medicine is flawed in various areas. And that's kind of what your advocacy is. You've written books, you're, you you know, you can find your uh, programs online. Let's talk about what a healthy pregnancy might look like through the stages for any women that are listening or expected parents, men or women, um, on what to expect. So let's start with the first trimester, Doc. And I know this is general, but this is all uh, generally speaking. What are some of the things that when a woman first conceives through the week 13, she should be looking for and doing to help with this process? Well, thank you. That's a good question. The first thing that most women would notice is the absence of a period. So if they ordinarily have a period every month or 30 days, they would find that they would probably about six or seven weeks after their last period think, oh, I might be pregnant. The next thing that happens to them as a rule is they get nauseated. So and that's sometimes difficult to deal with. We Years ago, we used to give out a medication called Bendectin to our pregnant patients, and that was for the treatment of nausea. Today, of course, that's not available. I have always tried to get my patients to eat well during pregnancy. So that means I'm going to tell you exactly what I tell them. I always recommend a little breakfast before they get out of bed, something simple like four to six ounces of fruit juice and maybe a cracker or something with a little bit of protein and fat in it. Because the problem with pregnancy is low blood sugar. And if you, if you eat something that's pure carbohydrates, your sugar will go up high and then it will go down low and then you'll be nauseated. So nausea is a big deal in the first trimester. Most women don't feel much for movement. 
They should have a heart rate or be able to listen to the heart rate really probably 10, 11, 12 weeks, something like that. And they should notice a baby bump at the end of the first trimester. Biggest challenge for women in that first trimester. What, what, if you could identify something, what would it be? It would be nausea. That's nausea. The, yeah. Most, and, and that's one of the reasons we, I've spent some time with you talking about what to eat. Uh, the next thing after they eat their little breakfast is to wait in bed for 10 minutes or so, then get up and eat a bigger breakfast. That should have some carbohydrates in it, some protein, and some fat. So you'd have a glass of juice, a hard-boiled egg, or some kind of egg like that. And then you'd eat like a diabetic for the rest of the day. Three big meals, three or four little meals, and then something before you go to bed. What about liquids, liquid intake, water intake? Well, of course, water intake is very important for pregnancy because you need to expand your blood volume. During pregnancy, you add several pints of blood to your volume and you need fluid to make that work. So yes, um, drinking water, drinking uh, fruit juices, um, milk, those are all good things to eat and drink. Okay. So the first trimester is we're just getting started here. The woman's body is going to start changing slightly. The biggest thing that she's going to notice is the nauseous. She's going to hit spells of nausea. Exactly. As a matter of fact, I do have, for example, I would not recommend eating and driving. That is a recipe for vomiting. So Yes, because uh, the nausea a lot of times will lead to the vomiting. Exactly right. Uncontrollable. Literally, wherever you are, it's coming out. Yep. Interesting. Okay. So that's the first, that's the first trimester. Take us into the second trimester, uh, weeks 13 through whatever it is, 26, 27. Well, that for most women is kind of a honeymoon. They feel the baby move. The nausea is easier to deal with. Uh, they're probably mostly gaining the right amount of weight. Um, and of course, for the most part, they probably will get an ultrasound at 20 weeks, checking for fetal anatomy, making sure that everything is growing the right way. And in other words, you've got two hands and two feet and one heart with four chambers and you've got a head and you've got a brain. Uh, those. Let things. me ask you, let me just interrupt you too. Um, during this phase where you really start, the, the, the science is able to start seeing seeing what the baby looks like, to your point, the, the baby have all of its limbs. They're also you're also able to take various tests to see if the baby is going to have Down syndrome. Is that correct? Those tests are usually done around uh, 13 weeks, okay. and yes, you can do those blood tests. Uh, they're very popular today, although they do mostly bring what we call soft signs. That is, um, they might the screen might be positive, but if you go to test them. Uh, it's negative. So uh, they bring up a lot of potential trouble. That's why one of the reasons for the uh, ultrasound at 20 weeks, in other words, uh, do you have signs of a Down syndrome baby at 20 weeks? So let's assume that you do, or let's assume that you have signs of something else that could be some kind of health scare or challenge for this child moving forward. Let's assume that you find out at, at 13 weeks. I mean, what's your bet? What, what kind of recommendations are you giving these women when you find out such sad 
potential news? Well, thank goodness for the most part, it doesn't happen very often, but it's important to discuss with the patient exactly what it means. Uh, it's hard to be certain, say at 13 weeks, that you have a Down syndrome. The other problem with Down syndrome is that there are several different kinds or manifestations of it, and many of them are compatible with life. So that is pretty much informed consent and what the patient wants to do. In other words, it doesn't matter what I want. It is what, after we discuss, it is what my patient wants to do. So many of them, you know, I live in a very conservative part of the country. Um, most people here would not opt for a pregnancy termination. Uh, so most of them, unless it's really something like, you know, it's called anencephaly, which is no brain. Uh, those are really incompatible with life. So right. uh, they would be, you know, at least in the past before uh, June 23rd of this year, um, I would just have recommended some uh, mesoprostol and uh, they could take that at home and, you know, come to the hospital for the delivery. So yes, sometimes we do recommend those things. I think now, of course, it's going to be more difficult. Right. With the uh, Roe v. Wade situation. Yep. Um, so second trimester, things start calming down. What are some of the things that women should be doing? Again, I know you talk, you, you dig into this in your programs, but generally speaking, what should they be doing in, in trimester number two? Well, one of the things we do is uh, it's called a glucose screen. That's between 24 and 28 weeks. Uh, they should continue eating well. They should come in for their prenatal visits. We can, you know, for example, if they have blood pressure, which seems to be creeping up, then we talk about modifying activity. And I mean, uh, for example, if you work three 12-hour days, it's probably better to work five five-hour days. Uh, bed rest is not what we used to think it was. As a matter of fact, it's harmful. So we don't recommend that anymore. I do recommend that the patients check their blood pressures at home and give me a call if they have a rise that's more than 10 points one way or the other. In other words, systolic or diastolic. So checking glucose is important, obviously. It, it's very important. There is such a thing as what we call gestational diabetes, and that should be diagnosed. And of course, if there's a family history or a personal history of diabetes, then we would do that screen earlier. And if they see that, if you do do the screening and they see that their glucose levels are abnormally high or off the chart, what kind of things are then you doing to tell them, hey, this is going to mitigate the situation? Well, the first thing we need to do is make a diagnosis. So that's a, a four-hour test. It's a fasting and then a 100-gram load. See, the screen is a 50-gram load. And then the one hour, two hour, and three hour, if two of those values are abnormal, it's gestational diabetes. The first line of treatment is uh, blood sugar management with diet and activity. And if that doesn't work, and then, of course, they have to check their blood sugars at home two hours after they eat, and they should run between 120 and 140. But if they run over 140 consistently, then we'd be talking about adding metformin, which is something we never used to do. 
And if, if that doesn't work, then we would add insulin to that. And of course, all that time, they'd be on a diabetic diet, which is basically what I prescribe in the first place in the first trimester. Got it. Okay. So the glucose is a critical piece to mitigate, prevent, protect against uh, diabetes. That's correct. There is such a thing as LGA or large for gestational age because of the sugar bath. We like to avoid that. And of course, if we get into that, and now we're talking about third trimester, so we want to avoid that. What about exercise? What should that look like in this uh, phase? Well, I always recommend some exercise. In other words, we know that bed rest is bad. Uh, there's nothing wrong with walking, although I do recommend that you not start anything real strenuous if you haven't started it before pregnancy. I have had uh, pregnant patients who are running several miles before they get pregnant. They continue running throughout the pregnancy and they have had no trouble. So if you're exercising before a pregnancy, just keep on exercising. If you're not, uh, exercise, but do it less. Like I said, walking instead of running uh, a couple miles instead of four or five miles. What about alcohol intake? What's your well, take on this, Doc? Well, you know, there's, I've gone to a number of fetal alcohol syndrome courses. And we know that there is no such thing as a safe alcohol level. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who has a glass of wine, especially before they know they're pregnant, is going to come up with fetal alcohol syndrome. The problem with fetal alcohol syndrome is that we don't know how much it takes to get the alcohol syndrome. And I expect it's different from one person to another. So we recommend no alcohol intake during pregnancy. Okay, because some doctors say, sure, one glass of wine a week. Everyone has a little bit of a different approach. You're saying just to be safe, cut it out. <laughs> Don't mess with it. Right. I mean, who wants to test it? Someone that wants to get a buzz. Apparently. <laughs> well, um, I'm not going to recommend that. <laughs> I would imagine that one of the things that, because that, what makes you unique, and you point this out in your literature and on your websites and everything is, you actually are listening to the patient. And well, that's that's fun. I'm sorry. That's fun because and and that's and that's become you're almost like a psycho uh, psychologist in some sort. So you're listening, and you're mod and it's not one size fits all. And when you're listening to the patient, quite often in these situations, I would imagine you're hearing about their personal things that are happening behind the scenes and how the family life is and what's going on at home with the husband. So what what kind of advice are you giving? Not maybe not just the woman, but the, the woman and the man uh, in a, a uh, couple where, hey, we're having some challenges. This is causing us a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. How do you help these people through that? Well, in the first place, all of my family members were welcome. In other words, the uh, dads or the partners, the children, everybody was welcome. I figured that if I could get dads and the kids to come in with the mom, that's probably two thirds of the battle. In other words, they buy into the pregnancy, which is my goal. And that's the best thing I can do for them to send them home in good condition. Now, if I see something going on like um, conflict or disrespect uh, or abuse, 
then we, I've always had a psychiatrist who I could call and get advice uh, for medication. Um, as a matter of fact, we'd agree on it and she would see the patient within a week. Uh, so we had that connection, but that's not always the case. And like you have said, most OBGYN doctors think that psychology and behavior is out of their realm. And until we start addressing those issues, we are not going to see the suicide, homicide, and drug overdose rate come down. That is now our number one cause of maternal mortality, 21% for those things. So, and it is sadly that 82% of the suicide patients have been in some kind of care for the depression. So they've been identified. Uh, anyway, it's very important for me and for any provider to understand how the therapy is working and whether it's appropriate, whether we're getting the results we want to get. Antidepressants for a woman who's pregnant. What is that like? What, what What's your take? Well, you know, there's an awful lot of controversy about it, but I think the bottom line is this. There are antidepressants which you can take. Um, I would say probably uh, Prozac and um, Paxil would be among them. Uh, for patients who are delivered, I usually have used Effexor because that gives them motivation. Effexor. Yeah. Okay. It gives them motivation, meaning it doesn't just knock them out and give them that, that it doesn't just eliminate the angst. You're saying that it, it gives them some kind of energy. Exactly. I mean, one of the things you have to do postpartum is you need direction. The things you have to take care of things that need to get done. So, you know, sitting on the couch watching TV all day is not where you want to wind up. I did a podcast years ago now with uh, an old friend of mine, Amy, uh, Amy Scarl, and it was all about overcoming postpartum depression, which she had multiple times. Every time she had a baby, it was dark. It was dark for months and months and months and months. Um, so Alexa, what was the name of that? Effexor. Effexor. Yeah. What other things are you doing, Doc? What kind of recommendations are you dealing? Because let's let's talk a little bit about postpartum. It's a real thing, right? Yes, it's a real big problem. It's a real big problem. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why is it a big problem and what's going on? Well, part of the biggest thing is we don't diagnose it really well. In other words, we throw this Edinburgh depression scale at patients. And if they make a, the right score, they get referred. The problem with referral is it can take months. And there's a lot of opportunity to be depressed or to commit suicide or get killed in those months that it takes to get in for, for that care. That's one of the reasons I decided I would be in charge of that care. In other words, I had this relationship with the psychiatrist uh, and she would see that patient within a week. The patient knew if she was having trouble between in that week that she could give me a call and I'd see her every day. That's what, it, that's what we need to deal with depression. The other thing is we need to understand that six weeks postpartum doesn't cut it. In other words, that's the way our present insurance system works. That's the way ACOG works, it, but it doesn't work for the patients. If you look at the CDC, you look at other countries, it's a year. 
So they need to be taken care of for at least a year. They need unlimited visits, unlimited access. Mm, interesting. It, that thing that could cause huge turmoil in people's lives. It's not just the woman; it's the entire family unit, right? And then there's kids. What are they? They already have kids, so now the kids are seeing a mother who's not stable and has emotional crazy swings and is depressed and is. I mean, it's it's a very complicated dynamic issue. But it is extremely important. And like I said, one of the fun things I did was to try to make sure that my families didn't wind up like that. In other words, there's a lot of space between happy and suicide. And this is the area that we're not dealing with, the mm -hmm. middle piece. Right. That's a good, That's that's very well put. There's a lot of space between happy and suicide. It, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Exactly. Find that middle area. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Okay, so you got that. Uh, we 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 talked about the second trimester. We've talked about postpartum, which, of course, happens after the baby. What about the third trimester? What are the things you're recommending? Well, of course, I would see the patients more often, as is common, uh, and I would see them as often as they needed to be seen. One of the problems we have is with insurance companies limiting the amount of visits. So since I own my own practice, I, if I got paid for eight and gave them 12 visits, the only person I had to talk to was myself. But I think that unlimited visits is extremely important, especially if you're watching something like uh, hypertension. Uh, you need to have very good um, relationships. The patient needs to know that she can call you, that she can get a, your attention. Uh, so, and of course, you know, you do the usual things. You listen to the baby, you make sure it's head first. Uh, she continues to gain weight in the usual ways. Her uh, reflexes are normal. There's something called preeclampsia, which is something they get before eclampsia, which is seizures. I never had a mom have a seizure in all those 6,000 deliveries. Good so it's possible. Good for you. That's fantastic. Uh, so, okay. And then we get to the most important uh, part. Here we go. It's time to deliver. And sometimes it's scheduled, but for a lot of people, it's not. Uh-oh, I'm going into labor. Here it comes. I got to get to the hospital. Hopefully it's not 85 miles, but who knows? Some, sometimes it is. Yep. So you, they come in just again, I know generally, what are some things that these parents can do, especially the mother, she's preparing to give birth to at least make the delivery process a little more seamless? Well, that's, of course, something that we should be doing. There's an awful lot. I read Twitter and listen to what young women are saying. Everybody wants an epidural. I'm thinking that many of my patients didn't have an epidural because they had normal labor. And of course, there are things to gain from having normal labor. And those that have to do with hormones, they have to do with breastfeeding, they have to do with not being depressed after delivery. Uh, as a matter of fact, normal labor has a euphoria. Um, it has endorphins, it has um, oxytocin, all of those things are feel-good meds, the feel-good hormones. The other thing that's really important is to not scare patients when they come in. This is a very, very basic, simple thing that's millions of years old. That is, 
what scares mothers when they come in? Well, nurses can scare mothers. Um, loud noises can scare mothers. Bright lights can scare mothers. Uh, clanking instruments can scare mothers. Uh, keeping their doulas or their husbands away, that scares mothers. Uh, a lot of pelvic exams. So there's a lot of ways to scare mothers. What mothers like is dark, warm, and quiet. Mm. So that's the atmosphere that you create at your place. That's what we like. The other thing is, I don't like delivering mothers on their backs. Uh, so often my deliveries would be on the side, um, preferably the left side. And that gives you all kinds of access. It actually helps baby come out because it opens up the back part of the pelvis. Why, why do not more doctors do that then? Well, unfortunately, this is a process that got started in about 1750 with the onset of the doctors coming in with their bag of instruments. It turned out that it was easier for the doctors to apply the instruments if the mother were on her back. Uh, so that's how that all got started. And unfortunately, we're still doing it several hundred years later. So it may be easier for the doctors, but what you're saying is it's it's a much easier delivery if for, for the woman, if you put her on the side. Exactly. And there are all kinds of other options. I mean, we had, for example, when I was in, in St. Paul, we had a lot of Hmong patients and they would come in with a white sheet, put it on the floor and, um, and in the corner, they would stand, uh, they would sit on their haunches, make beat and butt, and they would deliver it that way. That was their favorite way. And it's a good position to be in. This is fascinating stuff. Uh, a couple more, and we'll finish it off. So, um, so that's the process, generally speaking. But what about some of these women that want to do it by themselves? They don't want Doctor Allen. They don't want the medical system. They want to to deliver that baby in their bathtub with the you know, real holistic, holistic one hundred and one. What's your take on all that? Well, I can understand why they would do it. And if you look at the countries with a good maternal mortality rate, again, the Scandinavian countries, two or three per 100,000, they have their choice. About 40% of their deliveries are at home with a midwife. You can also deliver in a birthing center with a midwife, and you can deliver in a hospital with a midwife or a doctor. Now, in our country, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists hates home birth. But they do have some recommendations for it. One of them is 15 minutes from the hospital. The other one is on the ground floor. So you don't, if you have an emergency, you're not trying to get down the stairs. Okay. So you're saying that it's, uh, you know, it's something that happens and people can do it successfully as long as they're doing it in the proper manner. I think it can be successful. Although if you listen to ACOG, that is... They say that the fetal mortality is twice for home birth what it is in the hospital. So okay. that's what they have to say about it. Let me ask you, because this is a hot topic right now. What What's up with all, the, all these vaccines that, that you guys are putting into these babies in the first few days of their birth? Well, what's, I know what's that, that. What's the purpose? And, and is it is it something that you advocate? Well, it's hard to know exactly what the purpose is, but the idea is it's called herd immunity. In other words, if we vaccinate enough people, these diseases will disappear. 
Uh, I personally am a little bit reluctant to endorse that. And of course, I'm 74 years old and retired recently. But uh, so I can say this without having to worry about what the licensing board is going to do. We're <laughs> getting fired from the hospital. But the, at the very least, I think we should give the babies less vaccinations at a time, because if they get sick, we don't know what they're getting sick from. You know, right now, the way this works in the clinic is we've got uh, three nurses in the room for a baby and they get uh, two jabs, one in each leg, but it's simultaneous. So, I, you know, I could hear those babies screaming from my office. Mm. Yeah, when my kids were small, you know, 50 years ago, we had the MMR and the DPT, but we didn't have a whole bunch of other things. And yes, I do believe that natural immunity is best. And I guess I can say this and probably aggravate half of the world, but I have not been vaccinated against COVID. Well, you and I have something in common, doctor. So <laughs> happy to hear that. Yeah. Well, you know, you look at the internet and the people who haven't been vaccinated are now speaking. Yes. And they've been not only vaccinated, but they've gotten the jab, the double jab, the triple jab, and they've gotten COVID multiple times. So. Again, it's just like any other vaccine. It's not going to protect necessarily against the disease. I've gotten the flu vaccine in years past, which I won't get that anymore either, by the way. But I've well, gotten the flu vaccine and I've gotten the flu in the same season. Well, I have never had a flu vaccine. So I'm a, you. I'm a bad you. doctor. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> um, well, this is, like I said, really fascinating stuff. People that want to learn more, you have programs that, that these people can join. Um, talk a little bit about your program and then where they can go find you online. Well, we have um, Safe Pregnancy Explained. That's a 30-page book. You can get it on uh, Kindle. Amazon. Amazon. And then there's a Safe Pregnancy Advice, which is a face group. Uh, now that, that must have been your better half saying Amazon. That wasn't Alexa speaking to us, was it? No, that's you're right. You got it. <laughs> you're making sure that I say the right things. Okay. And then, of course, there's lindemanmd.com. LindemanMD. And if somebody wants to enroll in your program, what what uh, what site do they go to? I would say the best one would be um, Safe Pregnancy Advice, the Facebook group. Safe Pregnancy Advice on Facebook. Yep. Okay. Okay. And we'll link some of your stuff here in the show notes. So anyone that's interested, go click on the links. You can learn more about Dr. Allen. And most of his stuff kind of ties all together. So you can find him in various places. Or just do a Google search on them. You'll find them. Uh, this is fantastic stuff. What What do you hope to, uh, now in this, you've, you said you've retired. What's kind of your mission at this point moving forward? Well, for the next 30 years, I plan to do what I've always done. And that is to give advice to women who are pregnant and to hopefully decrease this suicide and homicide rate. According to the CDC, these are all preventable. Uh, we should not be having women die from these things in our country. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Thank you, Dr. Allen. Really appreciate connecting with you. Thank you so much, Nate. Appreciate it.